for your glory and for Christ's sake. Amen. Good morning, Grace Fellowship Church. Guests. So, uh, um, I'm sure some of you saw, but I saw a Facebook post this week a couple of times from a guy named Richard Owen Roberts. And the clip that I saw was from a sermon that he preached down at a G3 many years ago when we went down there. And uh, he, he basically is, is talking about the Word of God. And it reminded me of, of just to have us to consider what the Word of God says about the Word of God. What the Bible says about the Bible, what God says. Hebrews 5.12. So, so as we know what the Bible is, we, we know what it is to, to do in us and for us. It's what God will use to, to save us and to sanctify us. Hebrews 5.12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the word of God is like milk to baby Christians, if you will, and it's food uh, as we mature and grow. Just like for a young child, when they go from their mother's milk to solid food, the word of God is to feed us. We are to be fed by the word of God. Another thing that we see the Word of God is a mirror. James 1, 23, For anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, so he'd be blessed in his doing. So the Word of God, we, we look in the Word of God and we see our failings and we see our flaws and we see God's designed for our life. Another thing the Word of God is, it's a Psalm 119, 105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's Word guides our way. The Word of God would guide our way. So like even today as we open up the Word of God and we preach in Luke 13, 1 through 9, it will guide our paths as Christians. It will be a guide to us. That is what the Word of God is. It, is. it is a lamp unto our feet. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? And this was the, 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 the major part of what Richard Owen Roberts was preaching in that sermon that he preached that we saw, some of us. He, he says the Word of God is like fire. This is what God said. It's like fire. It's like a hammer. So, so the Word of God is to uh, ignite us. It is to burn us, if you will. It is to hammer us and to crush us and to, and to bring us to the end of ourselves. The Word of God is meant to humble us. Uh, the Word of, you know, the Holy Spirit is our comforter, and we do have comfort. He comes alongside of us. There's comfort. Uh, the Word of God, the Word of God will comfort Christians, but the Word of God first and also will ignite us. It will crush us. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, of discerning thoughts and intention of the heart. The Word of God, again, it is a sword. It is a sword that is to cut us. 
So a faithful preacher of the Word of God is going to preach the Word of God and it's going to be, it's going to be food for us and milk for us. It's going, to be, it's going to be a mirror to show us our flaws and our failures and our need for Jesus Christ. It's going to be a lamp that's going to light our paths. It's going to be a hammer and a fire and a sword. And a faithful listener to the Word of God is going to be impacted in that manner. So even as we look at today's passage... The Word of God is meant to guide us, to, to, to cut us, to humble us, to ignite us, and to feed us. And so I want to remind us when we, we, we approach the Word of God, whether it be in our own time of reading the Scriptures or in the time of corporate worship when the Word is preached, this is what it will do for us. So expect that. Pray the Spirit of God would do that. That it not just be a time to hear something and have no real change. None of these effects take place. Just to be informed and to walk out with more information than you came in with. Or to open up your Bible in the morning when you're reading your Bible and just open it up to have more information. Have an expectation of change. Of pain, if you will. Of a, a light. Of a sword and a fire and a hammer. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, we're going to be in verses 1 through 9, and we're coming to the end of what was a, a message that Jesus gave in Judea um, to a, a group of tens of thousands of people and his group of disciples more near him. Um, and, and this, so all the way from Chapter 12, verse 1 to 13, 9, you have this, this sermon or this message with a little bit of interaction from some people along the way. Remember, you have tens of thousands of people that are, that are there's so many, they're trampling one another to get near Jesus, to hear him teach and to, and to be near and uh, partakers of the miracles he's doing. He, he tells his disciples in front of all these folks, he tells his disciples, you be careful, you beware of the, the leaven of hypocrisy. Uh, the Pharisees, your, your leaders, they are hypocrites and, and they, their outward religion is far different than their inward reality. And, and he tells them that, 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 that nothing, nothing will stay covered. Everything will come to light. And, and, and after he tells them that, he says, so listen, everything's going to come light in fr- before God. Everything is going to come to light. No secrets. These secrets of hypocrisy, the leaven of hypocrisy, Actors on stage, don't be one of those because everything's going to be exposed. So don't fear man. Rather, fear God. Fear God who can cast you into hell, not just take your life, can ta- cast you into hell for all eternity. Don't fear, these, these, don't fear any man. Don't fear these Pharisees. Don't fear any of these Jewish leaders. Don't fear any man. Fear God. And, and he says, fear God, believe in Christ, and then trust in the Holy Spirit to have you be bold as you tell of Christ. So he's talking about e- eternal life with God. He, he's, telling him, he's telling them that, that uh, this, is, this is how you be in God's kingdom. Not like the religion you see. Uh, fearing God and, and trusting and believing in Christ and trusting in the Spirit. And then in the middle of this conversation, remember a materialist or a temporalist, a man 
speaks out and says, hey, teacher, tell my brother to give me my money, my inheritance. And so Jesus takes that opportunity to tell a parable about the rich man. The rich man who built up a bunch of treasures on earth, had so much, so much gain and yield that he had to build bigger barns. And he was very satisfied with that. He's very satisfied with his temporal gain. He's very satisfied with all he's accomplished on the earth. So now he could just be, be he could retire in comfort. And Jesus tells this parable to say, this man, his life was required of him the night he sat down with all of his accomplishments. And, and he said, this is who you are if you're focused on these things of the earth for your own benefit and you're not rich toward God. And, and, he, and he tells them, don't worry. Don't worry about your temporal provision. Don't worry about food and clothing. Don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll wear. Seek first God's kingdom. Seek first Jesus' lordship. Seek first holy, righteous living unto the Lord. Seek that, not these things on the earth. Because listen, little flock, your father, your shepherd, the king of the universe, he's pleased to give you eternal life, to give you the kingdom. Focus on that. Focus on his Lordship. And then he goes right into talking about, okay, now, and also be ready for the master's return. Focus not temporally, focus eternally, and be doing that at all times because you never know when the master's going to return. And he, and he tells them about the master's return, and when he returns, he's going to find four different types of slaves, four servants, and three of those are going to be punished, and one of those is going to be rewarded. And so he's saying, be ready for the return. He tells them then about the, the fire, the judgment of God that he came to bring. He starts out saying this judgment, the wrath of God the, against the sinfulness of man. I am going to take that on at the cross. I wish it were already done, he says. But this fire that I bring, this judgment that I bring, it is going to, it is going to divide people. It's going to bring division. Jesus said, I didn't bring, come to bring peace I came to bring division. I'm, only going, I'm going to divide households. There are going to be in the same household some who are with me and some who are against me. There will be a division in households, mothers from daughters, fathers from sons. No longer is it because you're Jewish, he's telling his audience. No longer do you have a familial way to God. Individually, each person is going to be either with Christ or against Christ. Be ready because he's coming back. He then, he then turns back to the crowds and he, and he tells them, you're really good at, at interpreting the weather, temporal signs. But you have no clue how to interpret the epic moment that you're part of. You have no idea how to interpret things eternal. Christ himself, the Messiah, standing in front of God's salvation, right there in front of, him, of them. And they're worried about Discerning the, time, the, 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 the temporal times, not discerning the times they were in, the time of salvation. And then he tells a parable. He tells them about, you ought to be concerned about the times you're in. You ought to be concerned about settling your case. You are guilty before God. You should be worrying about settling your case as you are going toward the judge, to be judged, you should settle your case before you get there because when you get there, it will be too late. Settle 
with the accuser, God, on your way to go stand before the judge, God, and he finds you guilty and throw you into jail, hell, for all eternity. Do that now. Settle your case. You're a guilty sinner. Settle your case with God in and through Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for your sins, if you believe in him. So that brings us then to today's passage. This is the end of that all we just talked about. All with this focus on eternity, not temporality. All of this focus on, on right, right, right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then stand and I will read verses 1 through 9 of Luke 13. We're going to see here that Jesus is going to respond to the tragedies of the day and to warn these Jewish, the Jewish masses of their urgent need to repent. Chapter 13, verse 1. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in the vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. You may be seated. Some of these people present asked Jesus about the tragedies of the day and, and what to make of them. Our king, our leader, our example, he takes the opportunity to use the, the tragedies of the day to call his listeners to repentance. There are lots of world events that take place. Lots of tragedies that we see. Um, the way news travels now, we see it regularly. And almost to a point where we're numb by it. I was thinking about this and I was, I was just writing down a few and, and as I'm writing down, just more and more kept coming to my mind and I stopped at a few, but it's, it's lots. We're exposed to lots of uh, tragic events. Things like 9-11. Things like, remember the floods in New Orleans. The, the Las Vegas shooting. The, the collapse of the building in downtown Davenport. Uh, the attacks by Hamas in Israel, and then the subsequent retaliation. All of these tragedies leading to death. As Christians, uh, we ought to learn how to interact with these, the news of these tragedies in the very way Jesus interacts with the tragedies of the day. We see how he interacts with the tragedies of the day. The, the, the news of death that's come, and what do you make of it? What, 
What he does do, which we're going to see, which is something we want to walk away with, is what Jesus does when he's interacting with the tragedies of the day, of his day, if you will, he uses them as an opportunity to preach repentance. That's what he uses them for. And we are to imitate Christ. So when somebody asks us about the floods in New Orleans, look, it it is true that God brings judgment. Death is the wages of sin. Death is going to come about. But what are we supposed to do with something like the Las Vegas shooting? What do we do with that? All right, so in today's text, again, Jesus has been telling them to be ready for his return, to settle their case with God before it's too late. He says this, There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So this this event, the Galileans slaughtered by Pilate, this event is actually uh, written about historically. Josephus, for instance, the first century Jewish historian writes about, or uh, um, yeah, Jewish historian, he writes about this event, this very event that's being mentioned here. The, the something, something like this that, that uh, would have certainly been trending on social media. This would have been on the front page of the newspaper if we even had such a thing anymore. So there was a group of Galileans. Remember, Galileans are from up north. Remember, you have, you have Judea, which is where Jerusalem is located, which is where the, the temple was located, which is where the, the most religious were, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. Then you had uh, Samaria, which was the half-breeds. And then above that was Galilee. Well, of course, Jesus was in Galilee, born there, raised there. Much of his time of the ministry we looked at prior to this was there. But the Galileans were looked down upon a little bit. But these Galileans, they would come to make sacrifices at the Passover. So, these, so what actually happened was at the Passover sacrifice, what, what happened was they were presenting their sacrifices, spilling the blood of the lambs. And Pilate, for some reason, came in and had his soldiers slaughter many of them. So he slaughtered many of these Galileans who were in the temple. And their blood was mingled with the blood of the sacrifices. Okay, it was a tragic thing. You know, Pilate's treatment of the Jews, it, it's what eventually leads to his demise and eventually leads to the, the revolt that leads to A.D. 70 where Judaism is destroyed as Rome destroys the temple and many cities around Jerusalem. And the, there's a scattering. So, so Pilate had, had for some reason, and we don't know why or how or who necessarily, but we know there was a mass slaughter of Galileans who were worshiping in the temple, making sacrifices. Their blood was spilled amongst those sacrifices. And this person brings this up. And then down in verse 4, Jesus brings up, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Now this particular happening isn't in any historical accountings, but we know it happened because Jesus said it happened. Now, what we do know is these, these 18 people that were crushed were Judeans. They were from Jerusalem. They weren't Galileans. We know that. And we know that, we know that, we know that Siloam 
was southeast corner of the temple, just outside of the temple there in Jerusalem. It was where the pool of Siloam was, where the blind man was healed by the, by the, by the water. That, that's Siloam. And Siloam was an aqueduct. There was an aqueduct that took water from there into the city and, and actually brought some down from the northern part. So there was, a, there was an irrigation system, if you will, or an aqueduct. Well, this tower very well could have been part of the aqueduct. But what we do know is those were Judeans that were crushed by the falling tower. We do know that the Judeans looked down their noses at the Galileans. So Jesus is talking about the Galileans because that's what the guy brings up to him, the people bring up to him. And he says, yeah, and also you had this tower fall on some Judeans and kill them. These are, these are the, the more religious Jews, not like the Galileans. So, so these two tragedies, these two current events that have just taken place in Jerusalem in the not-too-distant past is what brings up. And so, so then Jesus asks, when he's answering this question or this query, asks if they were worse sinners or offenders. Back to the text. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans who, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you think that these were the worst of the Galileans? Do you think that they were slaughtered by Pilate's army in the temple because of bad sacrifices or because God was displeased with them? Is that, that what you think? How about those 18 that were killed by the tower, the falling tower? Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Do you think that God had them killed because they were worse sinners, worse offenders than the others around them? Now, the reason that he's asking that, uh, this is how Jews thought about affliction and death. And oh, by the way, some Professing Christians want to think this way. Okay, even today, but certainly in Jewish times, but even today, people think that afflictions and death are God's judgment for particular sins. Like New Orleans. Because they're worse than Iowans. I mean, look at the decadence in New Orleans. Okay, this, this, this way of thinking... This, this way of thinking that, that affliction and death was because of God's judgment, or even this way of thinking in Judaism that, that, that wealth was a sign of being closer to God. Good health was a sign of being closer to God, and those were the blessings of being right with God. And the judgments of being wrong with God were afflictions and death. John 9, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciple asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. So their assumption was that sin was the reason that guy was blind. Either his or his parents is the reason he was blind. This way of thinking goes all the way back, all the way back to the, to the book of Job. What happens when Job has all of this calamity come upon him and Eliphaz comes to, to counsel him? Job 4, 7, Remember who that was innocent ever perished. Or where were the upright cut off? 
As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. In other words, Job, obviously you've plowed iniquity and you've sown trouble and you're now reaping the same thing. Again in Job 22.5, Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. For you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. The man with power possessed the land and the favored man lived in it. You have sent widows away empty and the arms of the fatherless were crushed. Therefore snares all around you and sudden terror overwhelms you or darkness so that you cannot see and a flood of water covers you. So, so again, Eliphaz is saying the reason you're having these bad things happen, Job, is obviously because of your sin. These people would be thinking the reason those Galileans were slaughtered and the reason that tower fell on them was because God was punishing them. They were extraordinary sinners. And he's telling this to a group of tens of thousands who are following Pharisees and Sadducees mingled in, and scribes, I should say, mingled in. And he's telling them this because they all think they're right with God. They haven't been crushed by a tower. They're not like those lowly Galileans. They're good Jews from Jerusalem. And again, it is true that God does bring judgment. The wages of sin is death. It is true that God can operate any way. It is true that God does bring judgment through death and affliction. But, but not because anyone's a worse sinner or offender than everyone else who's separated from God. See, because people that are right with God get hit by trains. Christians incur cancer. Uh, uh, wealthy pagans live long lives with big houses and lots of cars. They also get hit by trains. Were the victims in Las Vegas, the sh- of, the, of the shooter in Las Vegas, worse sinners? Well, they were in Vegas after all. This is how we think sometimes. Here's what we know. If they did not know Christ as their Savior, then they're just like the one who the tower fell on and, the, and the, that were slaughtered in the temple. So here's Jesus' answer to that question that he knows they're thinking because he knows how they've been taught. They know that they've been taught judgment, affliction, and death is because of sin. Particular sin on people. And blessing is because of a closeness to God. So here's Jesus' answer. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. No. Not true. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. No. Do you think that the Las Vegas shooting victims were were worse sinners than those that didn't get shot in Las Vegas that day? No. Do you think that those that died in the flood or lost their home in New Orleans were worse than those in Iowa? No. They're not worse sinners. That's not God's economy. You can't 
You can't know God's reasons, Eliphaz. They were not worse sinners and offenders. And again, he's telling his audience, by, as a matter of fact, they're exactly like you all. Here's what you need to know. They're exactly like you all. Look, suffering is not proportionate to sinfulness. It's not. Tragedy is not a sure sign of, sure sign of God's special judgment. It isn't. Pat Robertson... It isn't. Might it be? Might. I don't know the mind of God. Jesus says, no, but here's what you want to hear from me. You're asking me about those Galileans that were slaughtered. I'm also going to bring in there the Judeans that died in the, the tower fall. You think they're worse because that happened to them? I'm going to tell you no, and unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The Galileans who were slaughtered by Pilate in the temple and the Judeans who were crushed by the falling tower, they perished in their sin. They were no worse than anyone else in their sin and they were no worse than you in your sin. They perished without having repented. So you repent or likewise perish. Now I tell you, but unless you repent, metanueo. Now we've talked about this for years, but it's a new day. He says, unless you repent, metanueo, to change one's way of life, as a result of complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. Unless you have a complete shift in the way you're thinking, ten thousands and thousands that are listening to me, unless you have a shift in your thinking that leads to a change in the way you live with your new understanding of sin and righteousness, unless you do that, you will likewise perish. And by the way, I've been telling you this whole time, you don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know when I'm going to return. You don't know when you're going to die. You don't know when they're going to come in and, and, and Pilate's going to kill you in the temple. Or you don't know when a tower is going to fall on you. But unless you have a change of mind that leads to a change of direction because you have a new understanding of sin and righteousness, you'll die in the same way they died. Jesus used the tragedy of that day to warn his listeners they must repent. Think about that concept. Somebody talks to you about what happened with Hamas and Israel. Well, you know, Israel are God's people, or they have a right to defend their borders, or you go into all these things that might be accurate. Hey, who I'm talking to, do you understand something? That those people who just died in Israel, if they did not know Jesus Christ, you too are going to likewise perish. You, not by Hamas coming in, not by a tower falling on you, you're going to perish in an unrepentant state. 
This, this repentance, this repentance, it is, it, is, it is the fulcrum of the gospel. It is, it is, a, it is the, the beginning point of the good news is this reality of a need to repent. This is what John the Baptist preached. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, He's here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Change your life as a result of a complete change of thought concerning sin and righteousness. This is what Jesus preached. From the very first day he came out of the desert after temptation, what did he first do? From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Have a change of mind concerning sin and righteousness that will lead to a change of direction, a change of life. Do that because the Messiah is here. The last words to his disciples before he ascended back into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What was he telling them to go do? Preach repentance. He did not tell them, go preach except Jesus. He did not tell them, go and preach a better life now. He did not tell them to go and preach, Jesus loves you and he wants you to love him back. He didn't, he didn't preach, have the faith of your parents. He preached, repent. And he told them, preach repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. Everywhere starting here in Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is asked about the tragedy of his day and what he tells them is, they ought to repent or they'll perish in the same way they did. Outside of reconciliation with him through Jesus Christ. Again, I won't say the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is Jesus. But the fulcrum, the beginning point of the gospel is repent. Repent is a necessary part of the gospel, of the good news of a call to faith. Peter, what did, he, what did he say when they said, what must we do to be saved? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be pickleized by the Holy Spirit as you believe into Jesus Christ. Starting with repentance. Have a change of mind that leads to a change of life because of a new understanding of sin and righteousness. The Apostle Paul, Acts 26, 20, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Repent, 
turn to God and perform deeds that are that are keeping with their repentance. Repentance is what we are to preach. Repentance is what we will do. Have a new understanding of sin and righteousness. Have a change of mind leading to a change of direction. I I think about my own life, September 11th of 2001. I had a change of mind that led to a change of my life based on a new understanding of my sin, my lack of righteousness, and my need for Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and give me an alien righteousness. I understood that. My mind changed and my life changed. It's what happened to Pastor Nick on January 24th of 06. He had grown up in a Catholic church with lots of Biblical teaching. He had a change of mind right in front of my eyes. A change of mind as it pertained to sin and repentance that led to a change of life. He got off that table a different man. Because when I got together with him, I did not teach him about how to make his marriage better. Or preach to him how to have a better life now. We talked about his sin. His lack of righteousness. His sin against a holy God. His need for forgiveness of those sins. There was a tragedy in his life. That's what brought us together. There was many tragedies in my life leading up to September the 8th when I went to Promise Keepers. There was a huge tragedy on September 11th. And I remember sitting there thinking, as I'm watching the events unfold, Hope those people knew Jesus. It's too late. And it dawned on me in that day, that afternoon, I don't know him. It was too late. They perished. Those people in the tower that did not know Christ, those people in the plains that did not know Christ, they perished just like the Galileans in the temple and the ones under the Tower of Siloam that fell. Not reconciled to their Creator. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. Again, not that you'll die in a tragedy, but you'll die sinners not reconciled to God. You will all likewise perish. Perish. Apollomai to perish, to be lost, to be ruined, to be destroyed. Jesus telling them unless they repented, they would die and be ruined for all eternity. And they don't know when they're going to die and they don't know when he's going to return. What kind of a slave are you going to be? Quit worrying about temporal things. Think about eternal things. Repent while they still had time. That's what he's telling them. This isn't a parable, by the way. This is actual events that happened. So so in, in John 8, he's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 21, so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. You're talking about temporal death. 
I'm talking about eternity. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you would die in your sins. Until you get a new understanding of sin and righteousness, until you get an understanding that you are a guilty sinner in need of a Savior, until you get that understanding, you will die in your sins, and you can't go where I'm going. So he said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to you to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he was, has been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Either you will be saved by God, from God, for the glory of God, by believing in Christ, or you will die in your sins. You will perish just like those Galileans and just like those that fell under the tower. Repentance is a necessary action. In order to live in God's kingdom eternally, repentance is a necessary action. Repentance, true repentance, is part of faith. A change of mind that leads to a change of life because of a new understanding of sin and righteousness. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief, godly grief produces, the word there, ergetsomai, causes to exist or works out. Godly grief Causes to exist a metanoia, repentance, that leads to soteria, salvation. Okay? Godly grief causes to exist a change of mind that leads to a change of direction that leads to salvation without regret, irrevocably. Whereas worldly grief produces death. I had so much worldly sorrow in my life before Christ. I can, the number of times I was curled up in a bathtub with no water weeping. Or sitting in a hotel room after committing great sins just broken. Only to get up and do it again two weeks later. Or two months later. I was headed to hell. But then, but then I heard something different that had me to understand sin and righteousness differently. Had me see that I was a guilty sinner walking to death and I needed to settle with God before I got there. And the only way I was going to be able to do that is in and through Jesus Christ because He did all I couldn't do and He died as if He did what I did. And I understood that. And my life was forever changed. And some man at Promise Keepers, I don't even know his name, stood up and preached repentance to me for the first time in my entire life. I'd been going to church for over a year. I'd never heard the word that I can remember. Godly sorrow 
brings about repentance that leads to salvation. So ought we preach repentance? Ought we use the tragedies of the day to unbelievers to preach repentance? Listen, anyone in here, anyone in here who is not trusting in Christ, you will perish just like those people who were in the, the building downtown Davenport that collapsed on them and they died. You will perish. And when you die, you will stand before God. And you will be punished forever and ever and ever. That's what will happen to you. And they were no worse than you. There was some present at this very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all, will, you will all likewise perish. People that suffer affliction or death what we would determine before it's time are not worse sinners than anyone in here they're not worse offenders <laughs> the man who gets put to death for murdering someone else is no worse sinner than you who have hated someone in your heart. His temporal judgment is different, yes? He died in a different way than you'll die. But his eternal destiny is exactly the same as anyone who has not repented and turned to Christ. So in order to make his point to these unrepentant, self-righteous, these Jews that are listening, that were counting on the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes and the rabbis, thinking that their religion, their following of the laws and the extra laws, and their sacrifices would take care of them. And he's telling them to make this point. He's now going to tell them a parable. A parable of the fruitless tree. Now fig trees were common in and still are in Israel. They... They produce figs, which are kind of like, I don't know, between what, a cherry and a plum. They get to be big trees, They're 25, feet, 20, 25 feet tall, 20 feet wide, shady trees. They're a useful tree. So he told this parable, he, Jesus, to this group who thought that, he thought that they were okay. They weren't as bad as those Galileans and those Judeans who had just perished. He told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? So the owner of the vineyard says, that fig tree, I've been here three years, it's producing nothing, cut it down, get rid of it. 
And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year, also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So this fig tree, the, the fig tree that he's giving them in this parable, it was a metaphor for apostate Israel in the Old Testament. Hosea 9.10, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the, the thing that they loved. Jeremiah 8.13, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the tree. Even the leaves are withered and what I gave them has passed away from them. So this parable that he's telling this audience is speaking right into what a fig tree, a fruitless fig tree is. It's this picture of apostate Israel. That's who they are because they're trusting in things. They're trusting in their religion. They're trusting in themselves. They're trusting in the teaching of their Pharisees and their rabbis for their salvation. They're trusting in false religion. So he's telling this parable and he's reminding them of their figlessness of their fruitlessness their fruitless lives before God all of these I'm tired of these sacrifices I'm tired of your burnt offerings I'm tired of your religion they needed repentance before they perished John the Baptist is speaking to the crowds that have come out to be baptized by him. In Luke 3, we saw this before. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. This group, these tens of thousands that are following Jesus, they were counting in their Judaism. They were counting in their lineage. They were counting in their circumcision. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is what happens to trees that don't produce fruit. They get cut down and burned. And the axe was at the root already. This is a picture, this picture of national Israel. And who he's talking to. It's also a picture, a picture of every individual sitting there listening to his words. Something I think is really interesting about this that we ought to think about because I think it's just the kindness of God. He told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up this ground? This tree is worthless. It's taking up space that could be used for a good tree that would bear fruit. Cut it down. This is what the owner says to the vine dresser. This is what the father says to the son. Hey, how long had Jesus been around? About three years. And he's fruitless. This this tree of Israel. This fig tree that has no figs. Sir, 
Let it alone this year also. Hey, before we cut it down and throw it in the fire, give it a little more time. Let me do this. Let me dig around it and put manure on it. Let me try to break up the ground and put some manure on it and help it to grow. And if it doesn't grow, then we'll cut it down. But just give it a little bit of time. Anybody who's here next week, you'll have more time. Anybody who's here next year, you'll have more time. You, you will have had more time. Now, you don't know when that time's coming. As Jesus has been painstakingly trying to tell us. But the fact that you're sitting here hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ once again is God's kindness to you. But here's what happened to Israel, to these tens of thousands that are listening to him, but for a few. Isaiah 5, let me sing for my beloved my song, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared out it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. This is what happened to this generation. What actually is going to happen to these people listening to his voice some 35 years later? The complete destruction of Jerusalem. Many of their actual deaths. This parable is pointing to the urgency with which a tree must bear fruit. Second Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Every single person that God predestined for adoption as His child, every single one of the elect, God is not willing that you perish. He wants and will have all of you elect come to repentance. God is patient. Why doesn't he just wipe you off the face of the earth now? Well, he won't. If you are one of his that Christ came to die for and is today is the day of salvation. Repent, have a change of mind about your guilty, your guilt before God of being a sinner. And seek the forgiveness of God that can be found in and through Jesus Christ. God is giving you time to repent. For those that have ears to hear. Turn to Christ and bear fruit worthy of repentance. Some in here, possibly some listening to my voice, you profess the name of Christ. You, you, you call yourself a Christian. And yet there's no fruit 
There's no, there's a godly, a worldly sorrow that's leading to death. There's really no fruit. There's no godly sorrow that's leading to a change of life. He's giving you time to bear fruit worthy of repentance. Because godly sorrow will produce a repentance that leads to salvation which is irrevocable. If there's no change in your life, today is the day of salvation, regardless of what you would call yourself. 2 Corinthians 6, 1, working together with him, then we appeal you to not receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time I listen to you. And in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This may sound like a broken record. We just looked at it last week, but it's the same story. Today is the day of salvation for all who would confess Christ as their Lord. All who would turn from their sin and see their hopelessness outside of Christ and look to Christ that they might live. Today is the day of salvation. James 4.14 You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For your mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. Do you think the people in that, that building that fell in Davenport and killed them thought they were going to die that day? Do you think the people in Las Vegas were the Sandy Hook shooting? Do you think those people went to school that day thinking they were going to be killed? None of you thinks you're going to get up or not get up tomorrow. None of you thinks today is the day you'll die. But you don't know, and I don't know. So I'm pleading with you that today is the day for you to put your trust in Christ because you're not promised tomorrow. And if you don't settle your account before, and if you're a, if you're a tree bearing no fruit, if you have a worldly sorrow that leads to death, you're going to go to hell. For all eternity. And Christ is not willing that his people would perish. Come to Christ while you have time. Your repentance is an urgent matter. My repentance is an urgent matter. Repent now and bear fruit before it's too late. Don't trust in your own righteousness. Don't deny your guilt. Don't deny the fact that you deserve God's wrath for your sin. Believe that and be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. If one does not produce spiritual fruit that accompanies salvation, they will be cut down in judgment. Judgment's near, yes? And God's patience in not bringing judgment is not because any worthiness in you.
It is because Christ died for a particular people. And those people are the ones who would put their faith and trust in him for the salvation of their souls, the forgiveness of their sins. God's patience with all of those living on borrowed time ought not be scoffed at. There was some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should, I use, why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let a little alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. These Jews who were asking him about these Galileans that had died in this, in this massacre that Pilate had brought upon them. He tells them, you're just like them. And you're just like the, the, the ones from Jerusalem, the Judeans who had the tower fall on them. And he's talking to a group of people who for three years he's been around and these Jews are bearing no fruit of repentance. And he's warning them, if you die, not having repented and bearing fruits worthy of repentance, you'll die just like they did and you'll be headed to judgment. Just like the three slaves we just talked about a little bit ago. That is applicable to everyone in here today. You are not the nation of Israel. But God has continued to be patient with you. He has continued to present you with, with hope. Charles Spurgeon says, There's a time for felling fruitless trees, and there's an appointed season for hewing down and casting into the fire the useless sinner. In that case, I will plead for it no longer, for it had its full time of testing and every opportunity of bearing fruit. After that, thou shalt cut it down. The parable is so simple it needs no explanation. Therefore, our Lord Jesus has not given any. May we all make a personal application of its solemn teaching. Amen. That's all of us. There were plenty of people in that audience that were really religious people really doing their best to do the right things, all the time trusting the things they were doing, believing they could be good enough. Closing thought. Death can come in many ways, including tragedies that come in an instant. But be certain, death will come to all. Do not perish in unbelief without the reconciliation to God available only through Jesus Christ. Do not die without Christ. Or you'll be just like every other, 
every other sinner who's died outside of Christ. Banished to hell, damned for all eternity. Look to Christ and live. Father, we thank you again for your word and the, the clarity of it. When I think about the reality of this text, as I think about your kindness to me and how I, I so deserved death and eternal damnation for 37 years of my life. And Father, I still deserve death and damnation, but you showed me Christ. And Father, you changed my mind. And you changed the direction of my life. Father, continue, continue to chasten me and guide me. Father, do that for all of your children. And Father, may today be the day where someone sees their need for Christ, confesses him as Lord, and is saved. Father, may this be the day where your spirit moves and people see that they have a worldly sorrow that's leading to death, but not a godly sorrow that's leading to repentance, that leads to salvation that cannot be revoked. Help us, Father, for Christ's sake. Amen.